Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and I, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him, and took the yoke of oxen, and sacrificed them, and boiled their flesh with the yoke of the oxen, and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose, and went after Elijah, and assisted him. Morning, fellowship. If you haven't turned there yet, please do turn to First uh, Kings. Chapter 19, so we can continue in our series through the life and ministry of Elijah. Um, and as you turn there, I'd just like to lead us in a word of prayer. Father, we ask that in this moment, in this time, you would give us a grace to, um, God, to encounter you in your word, to hear from you, and the grace that we need to yield to what we hear. So we can live in response to your call through this word. So we ask that you would give us that grace in this moment. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Sin is not the only thing that will keep you from following after God. When I was in high school, I got my first job, and uh, I was at Foot Locker. After a couple months, I was made the shift manager, which means I held keys and had to close out the register. It was annoying. Um, but I remember one day I was on a break, and I was walking through the mall after my lunch break, <clears throat> walking back to the Foot Locker in the mall there, and I stopped by in a store that just sells hats. That's all they do is sell hats. And I was just looking at some of the hats, and the guy started talking to me, the manager there, and we struck up a conversation. He found out what I did, and he said, hey, why don't you come work for me? I'll make you manager, and you'll have higher pay and all this kind of stuff. And initially, I thought, wow, that's really cool. I like the prospect of being pursued and being asked, and that's nice. But the problem was I already made a commitment that I'm going to work at Fullock. And I would have been wrong to switch jobs, but... I had friends there, I was friends with the manager, and I just felt, you know what, I'm going to stick with these guys. And I knew I couldn't do both, because you can't be a manager of two stores. Um, before I strike that home, let me put it another way. An illustration of marriage. You know you're not ready to marry a particular person if you still daydream about another person you used to date. Now, if you get an inkling that the person you're about to marry is still in love with someone else, not a good idea. And no, the ring isn't going to make a difference. Right? It's not wrong for me to sell hats. It's just that I had already decided to sell sneakers. It's not wrong for you to date a woman as long as you're not also engaged to someone else. See, the things that we're supposed to do or not supposed to do aren't always the black and white things that you find in the Ten Commandments. Sometimes they have to do with allegiance. 
And sometimes they have to do in subtle ways with leaving something behind so that you can do this thing that you're called to. And that thing that you're supposed to leave behind isn't necessarily a scandalous sin, but it's something that will tear you away or distract you from this thing that you're called to do, and so you have to leave it behind. The things that keep us from truly responding to God's call often call us away from something else. And this passage, I think, is a, a, the perfect passage to go to to look at that. If you're there, it's 1 Kings 19. Elijah's discontent. He's dispirited. God tells him, look, I have other people in the wings. You're going to anoint two new kings, and they're going to take over, and they're going to finish wiping out the Baal worship. And you're going to anoint another guy. His name is Elisha. And he's going to succeed you in ministry. This didn't mean that it was going to, Elijah was done and this other guy was going to come, but there's going to be a training, a mentorship, a relationship between Elijah and Elisha. So what does Elijah do? He gets up and he goes and he goes and finds this guy. And we see that in verse 19. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now, there's some cultural things going on there. Um, if I walk by the jewel and there's somebody walking by and I take my leather jacket and I throw it on someone's shoulders, that would just be weird. But what's happening here is there's a passing of the mantle. What Elijah's wearing is sort of what a king would wear, what a prophet would wear to identify him in that office as prophet. It was probably a sheepskin or some kind of animal skin or something, and he took that, put it on the shoulders of Elisha, and Elisha immediately knew what that action meant. And so Elijah apparently doesn't have to say anything in verse 20. It says what Elisha's response was, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? Sounds kind of rude, but we're probably missing some cultural things again, but it's a rhetorical question. Sure, go do what you have to do. I'm not preventing you. And then in verse 21, he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now these are three verses that are stuck in the middle of Elijah's encounter with God in the mountain and what ensues with the ministry uh, as Elijah continues to confront Ahab. That's the storyline we've all been following along. Some of you watch a show on TV and you're getting it, you get it, and then one episode goes and you're like, what does this episode have to do with it? It's like a filler episode. They're like, we don't know what else to do with the story. Uh, stretch it out a little bit. We need enough episodes to fill up the season. You're like, what is going on? The Bible doesn't do that. If there's an episode in here, it's there for a reason. And these are three short verses that, are, that make up a, a really short episode about how Elijah went. It doesn't tell us how Elijah went and got Jehu. It doesn't tell us how Elijah went and got Haziel. But it does tell us how Elijah went and got Elisha. And the verses focus not on what Elijah is telling Elisha, but on how Elisha responds to the call. And therein we find the lesson for us. One thing that's noticed about what Elisha does is uh, he doesn't hesitate. 
He doesn't ask for explanations. He understands what the call is. And then he asks to go kiss his father and mother, and then he'll follow. Obviously, he didn't just literally run into the house and go, bye, and then leave. He takes the yoke that were on his oxen, and he has 12 oxen. The scholars tell us that he was probably wealthy. To have 12 oxen and they're plowing the fields, he's, this guy's got a, a good business going on. Um, he, he takes the oxen, kills them, and then he cooks them to celebrate with, with everybody that he's going to leave behind. And not only does he cook the oxen, but he, for the fuel, to fuel the fire that's going to cook the flesh, he takes the yoke, and he, okay, so it's like somebody uh, is burning all their lawn equipment. Just do away with it, because he's not coming back. And so it's not just symbolic of him leaving a past life, it's literally him not being, I'm not coming back here, because if I do, there's no ox, there's no yoke, and I have nothing to plow the fields with. This, this career is over. I'm not coming back here. And he wasn't telling mom and dad, see you in a couple weeks. When he said kiss them goodbye, he meant goodbye. I have to go and do this thing. So Elisha knew that he had to cut ties with his work, with his family, meaning he had to cut ties with money, his income, everything that was comfortable to him, everything that he built for himself, and with everything that's familiar. Nothing's wrong with these things. Nothing's wrong with these things. God didn't rebuke him for plowing the field, rebuke him because he's using oxen. But he has to put those things away in order to follow what God is calling him to do. If you live your life just black and white, what's sin, what's not? I just do the Ten Commandments. I just do the golden rule. I just do... And everything's about rules and do's and don'ts, and you're not getting the subtleties of God's hand on your life, then you're missing it. Because not everything is, as long as I don't do the scandalous sins, and I do a couple of nice things every week, everything evens out. Without regard to what, what is God's hand on your life, is he calling you to do something that isn't about right and wrong, but it's about God is asking you to do this, and that means you have to lay down that. And so... Elisha recognized that all that would hinder his call to ability to fulfill that call. He can't go and follow Elijah if he's also going to plow fields. He can't go and follow Elijah if he's also going to hang out with mom and dad. Can't do it. Uh, to go back to the illustration that I opened with, if you're standing at the altar and you're looking at your bride and you're repeating the vows that hopefully you've looked at before you stepped into that altar... You're not only making a bond with her, but you're also cutting other ties. She comes before, she comes before mom and dad. I really hope everybody who's married in here gets that. Doesn't mean you disrespect mom and dad, but it means this new allegiance is your primary supreme allegiance now. Not mom. I don't want to preach on marriage, but it's an illustration of what's happening, I think, in this passage. You get married and she becomes, your bride comes before your buddies. She holds your full unshared romantic attention. And so there's nothing wrong with hanging out with your pals. There's nothing wrong with going to mom and dad's house as long as it doesn't interfere with your new allegiance.
And so there's things in our lives that there may be nothing wrong with them. But the way we do them or how we go about them interfere with God's call to do those things a certain way. What God calls you to do something, you need to understand it's also a call away from some other things. God calls you to something. By very definition, you're being called away from something else. If you're like me, and I just want to take a moment because I had to put this in here. If you're like me, your mind, when you read this passage, starts racing over to the New Testament. And there's a really similar episode, and you've got to pay attention to those similarities in Scripture because they help interpret one another. And there's an episode where Jesus is confronted by a couple of guys kind of the same way. Jesus is asking them to follow, and they're going, hold on a second, let me go do this. Elijah says, sure, go ahead. Jesus said, don't do that. That's not following. And so I thought, wow, that's kind of, I don't know, a contra not a contradiction, but there's a real heavy contrast there. Let me read those verses for you. You don't have to turn there, but if you want to, if you're quick with your sword drills, Matthew 8. Some of you haven't been in the church for decades and decades, don't remember what sword drills are, but the word is your sword and how fast can you turn to scripture and whoever turns there the fastest gets a free gift certificate to the Christian bookstore. I don't know. <laughs> Matthew 8, 18 to 22. And so... Now, right at the heading, the, the rubric above verse 18 in my Bible says the cost of following Jesus. Verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. All right. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you're going to follow me everywhere I go. That means you need to leave your house, drop your mortgage payment. Let the lawn, the weeds are just going to take it over. It's just going to foreclose or you'll have to sell it. Well, the market, too bad. Because I don't have a home. And then another person approaches Jesus, one of his would-be disciples. In verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That sounds a little bit similar to what Elisha was asking. Let me go square things away with my family, then I'll come right back. Let me go bury my father. Now, it's not sure if his father was ill and looked like he was about to die, or if his father had just recently passed and he wanted to go square those things all away. But verse 22, and Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. No, <laughs> that's, not, that's not following me. That's, that's people that are spiritually dead. They're going to handle people that are physically dead. Just let that be what that is. But I'm asking you to follow me. And you have to be able to walk away from that stuff. In other places you hear Jesus talk about, you have to be able to hate your mother and hate your father. Not literally hate, but your allegiance to me is so devoted, so unquestioned, that in comparison, it's like you hate everything else because you drop everything to follow me. The scribe needs to leave his home. The disciple needs to leave his father's funeral. Now, those of you who have been to a funeral of a close loved one, I think it's hard to try to find an excuse to not show up at your dad's funeral, for example. And of course, back then, it was expected that this person probably had to handle the arrangements. Now, today, we handle a funeral is all said and done in less than a week. person passes away on Monday, and by the next Monday, everything's done. You can go visit the gravesite, and the stone won't be there yet, maybe, but it's there. It's, there's no more ceremonies, no more 
There's a, there's a one wake, there's one memorial that does not a continued thing. But for them, it, it could continue up to a year. They had a second burial, a, a part one burial and a part two burial, a long process to just really drag out, you know, the mourning process and all that kind of thing. And to really pay respects to that passion, so honor our you know, mother and father. So I think here what the contrast is, is not that Elijah thinks something is okay that Jesus thinks is not okay. It's not like Jesus is like, no, that's bad. And Elijah's go, what are you talking about? I think it's fine. It's not that they disagree. It's that Elisha, his request, and this disciple's request are two different things. The disciple asked Jesus if he could go bury his father, but Elisha wanted to go kiss his father. There's a little bit of difference there. Because the disciple wanted to spend at least a week, maybe even a year, either waiting for his father to die or sticking around for the second burial. Elijah apparently took a day to burn his career and say goodbye. It's a little bit different because the disciple wanted to mourn the loss of what he was leaving behind. Elisha wanted to celebrate his call by formally dismissing what he was leaving behind. Do you see the difference? The disciple tells Jesus, I want to go back and get with my family, go, oh, my father, and lay him down and, and think about the past and really mourn the past and mourn what I'm leaving behind. Elisha in his excitement is, can I come right back? I want to make this a clean break and make it clear to my family. I'm not coming back. I'm burning the, I'm killing the oxen that have made money for me. I'm burning the yokes that have made money for me. I'm leaving everything behind in a celebration of accepting God's call. It's a different request. The disciples asking Jesus for stall time. And Elisha's asking Elijah for a moment of celebration so he can pursue Elijah with everything, no strings attached. He wanted a day to cut all those strings. So I think in both passages we see the same message that God calls a disciple to kingdom work and requires a break with ties that would hinder that work. It would hinder doing that well. And he calls you to something. He calls you to something. And that involves a walking away from some other things. Now here's where this passage lends immediate application to those of us called to ministry. If you were a group of seminary students, this would be an easy sermon. So God's calling you to ministry. You need to walk away. Don't let your family get in the way of ministry. Don't let... That's pretty easy. And that's good. That's a good sermon. I should probably tab that for a future sermon if I ever get invited to speak at Trinity. Yeah, right, but, you know, just put it there. But you guys aren't called to be pastors. Most of you, maybe, I don't know, God could change, right, do that. But unless you're called to full-time missionary work somewhere or called to be a full-time pastor, you're looking at this passion like, okay, cool. You know, was it like that for you, Lucas? Did somebody throw a cloak on you? Cool, you know. But I think there's application here for everyone. Let me ask this question. Do you have a call in your life? Don't think about the person sitting next to you. This is a question for you. Do you have a call on your life? Does God have a call on your life? Yes or no? That's a different question than what's your American dream? I want to be an astronaut one day. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. Not what's the American dream. Does God have a call on your life? There's a passage in Philippians 2.13 that says, 
It is God who works in you, you being the people of the church. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Al shared with us a fat passage in the opening of our service this morning that tells us that God ordained all of our days. Ordained them for what? Does God purposely ordain or does he purposefully ordain? I think we make a mistake if we say God's vision for my life is to worship him. Now, that's God's vision for everybody. But why did he give you a particular DNA, fingerprints, the talent set that you have, the resources that you have? Born the day and the moment that you were born. That those appointed days started at that precise time. So your timeline, your life timeline would intersect with the lives that are, it's intersecting with. Is that a mistake? Or is God doing something there that we may be missing? Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. There's this powerful verse. Paul says to the church, God gave the pastors to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now listen to what he says there. He's not saying God calls everyone to be a pastor. He says God calls some to be pastors in order to equip the saints, not St. Christopher, St. John of the Cross. Saints meaning holy people, people that are made holy because they accepted Christ's sacrifice on their behalf and they're washed because of it. They're cleansed and they bear the righteousness of Christ. Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, you're a holy one, you're a called one. He's saying pastors are called to train the Christians to be ministers. That's Ephesians 4.12 if you want to jot it down. Ministry means service. Ministry does not mean office. Right? Minister O'Neill, Reverend Lucas O'Neill. We turn it into an office, but ministry is service. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he's not saying only people that are called to a pastoral office are to serve other people. No, we serve God and his kingdom, and we serve each other. We serve the needs of people. So that's ministry. So God's called, it's called every Christian to ministry. I hope you see that connection and that you don't think I'm, I'm making that up. Ephesians 4.12. Pastors are called to equip the saints to do what? To do ministry. That's my job. To equip you to go fulfill your calling. And the people that are called to plant a church in Papua New Guinea somewhere, those aren't the only people with calls on their lives, folks. You're called. By God. Let me rewind take you back to an old book that was originally published in the 1890s. You ever wonder where the phrase, what would Jesus do, where that came from? Well, some guy in Holland, Michigan started a youth group. He didn't make it up. We're not even sure Charles Sheldon made it up, but he popularized it in his book, In His Steps. It's a story about a pastor. His name is Henry Maxwell. And after a life-changing experience, he challenges his church one day. For the whole next year, he tells his church, I want you to ask yourself this important question before you make any decision. What would Jesus do? Now, for you and I, we're like, if I see one more bracelet. But in 1890, that was a little bit fresh. 
Wow, that really asks, what would Jesus do in this situation? Now, it's easy to ask, what would Jesus do if he were a pastor? What would Jesus do if he were an elder? What would Jesus do if he were an itinerant preacher or a missionary in Afghanistan? But what would Jesus do if he were an architect? What would Jesus do if he were a plumber? That's what this pastor was challenging his congregation to think about. And so some people stayed after the service to make that pledge. And one of those uh, characters that did that, his name was Raymond. He was the senior editor of the Daily Paper. And from that point on, he refused to print stories covering events that he believed Christians shouldn't go to. Immediately, his clerk comes in the office and has his three-and-a-half-column uh, story about an event, and he says, we're not going to print that. What? And the paper comes out the next day, and everyone's looking for this big story, and the story's not in there because he doesn't feel like that's relevant to those of us who are serious about Christ, and he didn't want to print garbage. There's a woman named Rachel. She was a beautiful and talented singer, and then she changes her style, the way she sings, because she's asking herself, how would Jesus sing this song? I went to a Christian uh, youth, it wasn't a concert, it was sort of a preaching, it was like a promise keepers for kids kind of thing, and there was preaching and music and preaching and music, and one woman came out, and she, you know both of these women that I'm going to mention, but I'm not going to say their names, but one of them came out, and you could tell she was there for ministry. She stopped in the, right after one of her songs, and she just shared a testimony, encouraged uh, us in the word, and then she went into her other song, you could just tell there was something about her, and then... Then there was some preaching, and then another lady came out. It was also popular, and she came out, and she's just fixing her hair and waving to people in the crowd and kind of just going through the lyrics of her song. How would Jesus sing the song? She's not a pastor. She's a singer, but she can still ask the question. Is she called to sing? How would God call her to sing? There's another character, Virginia, a millionaire. She was an heiress, and she had to decide how she believe Jesus would use that wealth. And so throughout the book, she has these dilemmas. Do I use my wealth like this? Is it wrong to even be wealthy? What would Jesus do with these riches? And so the book strikes a particular chord with me as a pastor because it shows how following after God is not a pastor's job. I get tired of that. Oh, Lucas, you do that. You have to. You're a pastor. But I'm not a pastor. I'm like, are you a Christian? I don't do it because I'm a pastor. I do it because I'm a believer in Christ. I'm following Christ in this. So it's not about being in ministry, capital M. It's about being a Christ follower. That's what Christian means, right? Being a follower of Christ. So this passage is about being called to minister for God. I think it is about that. But each and every one of you is so-called. And in order to follow that call, you have to recognize what you're leaving behind. Here's one way I thought I could try to help you guys, because I'm not going to go down the list of each and every one of your careers and your home life and put it up on the PowerPoint and teach you how to be Christ in each of your particular contests. you got to help me out. Do some thinking. Do some work. Allow the Holy Spirit to start helping you meditate on that. Start rethinking how you do things in life. And start thinking of yourself as someone called to follow Christ and everything that you do. And you don't leave that calling behind here in the pews. You take it out there 
into the cubicle, into the shop, into the school. There's a passage in Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm not ripping that out of context. That's exactly what Paul was talking about. I'm not doing what I'm doing. Christ is doing it in me. It's not, it's not me trying to gain righteousness. It's what Christ has done in me, and he owns and controls me. And so you can plop any career there. It's no longer a firefighter who lives, but Christ who lives in the firefighter. So how would that change how he does things? Everybody else has nudie posters on, his, on their lockers, and he doesn't. And then he uses that as an opportunity to have a conversation about it. He doesn't, well, oh, my wife would get mad if I forget the wife. I don't do that because it's wrong to look at that, guys. Right? It's no longer the actor who lives, but Christ who lives in the actor. Would Christ living in the actor accept that screenplay? Well, he's not going to get jobs then. You got to leave one to do the other. It's no longer the cab driver who lives, but Christ who lives in the cab driver. You could just put anything you want in there. And so you may feel like you have a lowly position. And one day when everyone, all the pastors and missionaries are being celebrated for all the things that they did for God. You're going to wonder why you spent so many years wasting away. Knitting your blankets and selling them online. Didn't do anything for God. Did God give you that talent? Then he gave it to you for a reason. And so you knit for God. I know this sounds corny. That's what it is. You have to ask yourself, how am I going to use my talents, my resources for the kingdom of God? How am I going to be different from everybody else who isn't owned by Christ? And so the actor may need to leave behind particular scripts. The bricklayer may need to be vocal about his displeasure about jokes that degrade women. Why can't it be as simple as that? Everybody jokes about it. That's part of the culture. You lay a brick, you puff a cigarette, you say a joke about women or blacks. And instead of being quiet, you say, I wonder if Jesus would say something. Suddenly you're a minister in your workplace. I think that's transforming. Let me close with this. In 1519, Hernan Cortez arrived at the beaches of the Yucatan Peninsula to lead a conquest against the Mayans and eventually the Aztecs. With very few men and very few resources and pretty mean-spirited guy, I think I would say, if I remember my history books correctly. He knew that if he started this conquest against these empires, outmanned, outnumbered, out-resourced, they're the visiting team, a lot of strikes against them, and his men could run, commandeer the ships, take off, leave him by himself, and he doesn't get his conquest for Spain. He wants position, he wants power, and so he burned the ships. Say, look, we either plow through Mayan territory and take this over, or we die. But there's no going back. There's no rescue ship. No choppers are going to come in and bail you out. This is it. I'm not saying we need to be like Cortez. But there's something about a single-minded focus on what your mission is. And as long as you keep the back door open, you'll always be mindful of that escape. And so you'll try to stick up for Jesus at work. And as soon as you get 
slammed for it. Oh, and then take the exit. Go back to secret service Christianity. But you've got to find ways to slam that door shut. Burn the ships. Burn the yokes. And stay focused on what God is calling you to do. Let's take a minute to pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we need your help to think and to feel with our spirits how life would be different at home, at the workplace, etc. If we really implemented something like, what would Jesus do? Or how would God have me respond to this situation? Or what does it mean to be a kingdom worker in this context? It's easy for pastors. It's easy for missionaries and church planners. But for the administrative assistant, for the accountant, for the housewife, for the gardener, for the student, what does it mean to be called to have your hand upon us? How are, we, how are we different as an employee? How are we different as an employer? Help us to really start asking those questions and to not try to cop out by saying, well, Lucas didn't provide a specific example for my specific. I'm asking that you do that, Father, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Peel back the scales of our eyes, of our hearts, Lord, to see where we can function as ministers for your kingdom better and help us to close that back door and burn bridges with the past, burn bridges with the old life where it was okay to not stick up for you, be vocal for you, where it was okay to kind of dibble-dabble in the gray areas. As long as we didn't break one of the Ten Commandments, we felt okay. And now we recognize we grieve your spirit when we don't respond to the call you have in our lives. Help us to leave here feeling charged that as disciples of Jesus Christ, each and every one of us sitting in here this morning are charged to advance your kingdom wherever we go. And it's not the work of the pastors and the missionaries, but the work of the saints. Help us to own that. Help us to take up that challenge and plow through enemy territory so we can advance your kingdom in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>